When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The, the breeding methods of old versus new. That's the question, yeah? Yep. Okay. Old versus new. Uh, when you're talking basically in dogs, especially the bull breeds that we're in, um, old versus new, the difference would be uh, money. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the old days, you know, there wasn't that, that, that importance of monetary gain. So when you're, you know, I'm talking about, you know, modern people that just have uh, uh, pet quality dogs. If you were breeding a dog, breeding a, a, a litter of pups, they would use, you know, that, that word that's taboo today. They would cull heavily. I mean, you know, uh, for example, you can see some countrymen today. Uh, I knew a guy the other day, he had a litter of yak terriers. He kept the three out of the eight that he wanted and, and, you know, put an end to the rest. And that's, you know, he had pups, he had what he needed, and the rest, you know, went in the ground. So that's the old way of selection. I, You know, I'm going to be working my dogs, working my line, whether it be terriers, whether it be bulldogs, whether it be fighting dogs, whether it be whatever. I will breed for myself and maybe a few, few, few uh, close friends and I will select what I need and the rest I don't need so the rest is cold today the breeding uh, methods is I may well breed a, a litter of eight and why would I cull five of the eight when I can sell them all for a thousand bucks a piece you see what I mean Unfortunately, you know, the specter of money came into the equation and it changed everything, it changed the dynamic. So that's that's one of the easiest ways of explaining it. I mean, again, it depends what breed that we're discussing. You know, if you're going to be talking about, um, you know, running dogs, for example, for the traveling families, um, you know, again, they would keep what they needed in the old days or they might, you know, give pups to to other people, other families and friends, but they were to be worked. And again, we're talking about working dogs. If uh, the dog didn't work, then, you know, it didn't get very far. You're not going to feed a dog when, you know, you can barely feed your family. So this goes part of the, you know, the, the, the old selection methods. I mean, today, this is why you had the real working dogs are anti um uh, kennel club and uh, whatever isn't is it the AKC in in the states? The, the, those you know the the working breeds are against that because every time the kennel clubs get involved with working breed, it suddenly becomes fashionable and the prices go up and the quality goes down. So you know most people, real workers, shy away from that. They want dogs that can carry out the task and uh, you know whether it be digging badgers or, you know, uh, culling foxes or, 
You know, they want dogs that are useful. The moment that you go over to uh, the kennel club type stuff, and the Yag Terrier is a good example. I mean, working Yag Terriers now go for up to 1,500 euros a piece in some places, which is crazy because you risk, every time you go out on a hunt, you risk the life of your dog, you know. Um, so that can become an expensive hobby. If you're putting a, a thousand euros into a dog, you're not going to risk that he's going to get killed on his first hunt. So a lot of people buy these working breeds with kennel club certificates and pedigrees, and they never work them because obviously they're too precious to work. So then obviously the quality starts going down. But what I often hear today, which is, is, is quite funny but sad in a way is the term uh, uh, the French would say rentable. when people buy a dog they see it as an investment and they want to get a return on investment so very often they'll buy a female thinking in their heads well in a year or two I will have pups and then I'll sell those pups and then I'll make X amount of money so they're not going to risk this female working and maybe getting killed because you know that's obviously a very poor return on investment but what they'll do is they'll keep the dog to one side and they'll breed it and then when people say oh you know other dogs worked or the parents worked or the you know in the pedigree it's full of workers but they don't themselves work so very quickly the the, the lines suddenly become sort of diluted and, uh, and, and that's where we are today. So in the old days, uh, I think the selection was was uh, raw, was, was um, you know, basically what we need and what we don't need goes in the ground. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, everybody's out to make a dollar. So um, the selection, you know, selection's not that, you know. How many times have you seen a litter of eight or ten pups and they're all champions? You know, people say, you know, there's not a bad one in the litter. They're all great. Yeah, yeah, take your pick. They're all winners. So, again, that's, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a sign of the times. Today, um, everything has a value. You know, there's not just a dog. There is a certain value to this. And it's not just in dogs. I mean, it's in, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day who was selling racing pigeons for sort of 50 grand or 60 grand. I mean, uh, incredible. You're talking about a pigeon. No, no, racing pigeon, stupid prices. So again, you know, when people are talking about a grand or two grand for a dog, you know, not quite in the same league, but you can see where we're going. You know, right. everything has a value. The importance of, of standard, how does that relate to... Um, the standard, the sta that's an interesting one because people get hooked up on this standard now what people should understand is a standard is a guideline all right i'll say it again a standard is a guideline it's not gospel it's not black and white it's a guide to help breeders to adhere to what will be a typical uh, specimen of that race uh, it's the same, for example, you know, it's open to interpretation. So you'll read the standard, and there are basic guidelines to adhere to, as in height and maybe color and maybe pigmentation and maybe, you know, dentition. 
So there are things to adhere to, but you shouldn't get caught up into, you know, if there's a slight problem, for example, a, a dog that may be slightly undershot, throw it out with the bathwater. You know, for one fault, you know, you can condemn a dog and say, no, it's no good, it doesn't fit the standard. People need to realize that it's only a guideline. You know, you you can go up, you can sway either side of the guidelines, just don't go too far. Yeah. And this is where the experienced judges are important because uh, an experienced judge will look at the overall animal. I mean, anybody will tell you that even a perfect dog has a minimum of three faults. So a, a good judge or somebody's worth his salt will look and will not turn a blind eye, but will say, well, even though the dog's a little bit on the tall side, it's balanced. Mm -hmm. You know, it's his screen type. That, for me, is is the best dog of the day. I mean, this. Uh, I mean, I once judged. Uh, I was helping Abe uh, Abe Harkness judge, and Abe Harkness once put a dog up that, for me, from afar, looked, um, you know, looked sort of banal. It didn't look very, you know, it looked average. And he said to me, "Yeah, but it looks average. But when you get your hands on it, it's as sound as a bell." as sound as a bell and that that stuck with me because i mean you know you should see from afar that the dog looks like a typical example of the race you don't need to go into detail with the with the standard but um again again it, it depends for, for example uh, in all other countries you haven't got a thing called the confirmation in france you've got a thing called confirmation which basically means at 12 months of age your dog goes before a judge and the judge tells you if it's a good dog or not okay it's complete bullshit it's just a, you know, another money-making scheme from the kennel club yeah. you know you, you have a guy who's not a specialist but what they do is they take out the measuring stick and they measure your dog and if your dog maybe is a centimeter over what it should be in the standard it gets thrown out you are no longer allowed to breed from that animal because this person decided there's a centimeter in it. You know? And again, the standard, we're, we're back to being open to interpretation. Um, if a dog is slightly undershot, we're talking Staffordshire Bull Terriers here. If, if a Staffordshire Bull Terrier is slightly undershot, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, you can, you can uh, breed out a fault within two generations. Slightly undershot, again is the open to interpretation you say okay and a good judge will say yeah his, his teeth aren't great maybe if you mate him one day you should think about using a dog with a better dentition that will help the breed but in france what they'll do is they'll say no the dog is under shock out finished you can't breed from it sterilize your dog it's finished so the the standard if you like people should should it's like anything, it's like the Bible or the Quran, it's open to interpretation. My vision of the standard is probably not the same as yours, yet the standard remains the same. It's, it's, it's written on paper, but what I see, and my idea of the perfect Stafford or Bulldog or whatever, probably isn't, I'm pretty sure, the same as yours. And that's what makes it interesting. You see, so again, standard is a guideline. 
it should be open to interpretation. I, I saw Her uh, Sarah Hemstock wrote um, on a on a page on Facebook the other day. She wrote that it's the overall dog. It's exactly that. It's the overall dog. It's not any one point. So a standard will assist a breeder into breeding towards something which should be a typical Stafford or or whatever we're talking about. So it's it's. It's interesting because people talk about standards. Your dog's not standard, you know. But standard for you probably isn't standard for me. You know, wh where are we saying with it? So again, it should be should be taken in context and and, and not about out of context. From from my experience, uh, the kennel club, um, especially in the UK and the Canine Centrale uh, in France, uh there for business it's all about the money it's about you know as uh was it don king or pt barnum said it's all about bums on seats right so you want as many people attending the dog shows you want to you know get through as many litters uh, as you can uh you, you know i saw again another debate today about blue staffordshire bull terriers in england there are so many people breeding blues now that blue has suddenly become the colour and the other colours now are considered rare. So they're putting together a petition to the Kennel Club to say, try, can we ban this colour from the breed, from the standard? Quite honestly, I don't think they ever will because it's business. You know what I mean? It's about all about registrations. Um, it's all about money, ticket money. So. You've got the kennel clubs, the AKC, the, the, the KC, the SCC, all these people. You only have to go and visit their, their buildings, you know, whether it be London or Paris, and you get an idea of how much money is involved. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the kennel club in, in France is what they call an association. An association is something that doesn't make a profit. <laughs> so when you see the size of the building and the price they charge, you think, how, how can they reinvest that money? How can they not make a profit? Yeah. Anyway, so, and then you, you're back to the clubs. Now, breed clubs uh, is a good idea, but unfortunately we are uh, dealing with people and fragile egos and money again and what happens with breed clubs is very often maybe people get voted in we're back to the old boys club the chums people get voted in that maybe lack a little bit of experience and then they start to you know, dictate and give out rules, and I'm talking again about the Stafford Club in France, for example. They um, try and dictate to um, incoming judges what they can and can't do. Um, they give a directive, which isn't official, but you know they make it known that you know when judging, we don't put up any blues or we don't do this or any dog's too tall. So they can bring in directives which, you know, it kind of affect the whole thing. And you get this clique mentality. Now, in France, again, I talk about France because that's 25 years I've been here. What I noticed that 
in France, you can only have one club, one breed club that's recognised. You can't have several. So if you don't get on with the people in it, tough. That's it. For example, in the UK, there can be 20 or 30 Stafford clubs. So if you don't appreciate how the club is being run, well, you go 50 miles up the road and you can join another club. You see what I mean? So it's it's a little bit different. So if, if you're talking about who's responsible for maybe, you know, the not ruining the breeds, but not really promoting what's important, I say the clubs are responsible at a small level with the clique mentality and you scratch my back and I scratch yours because we're back to the same thing again. It's all about money. You know, they they want to sell pups and they want, you know, any customers come to the club, they get funneled off to their friends. You see what I mean? So it becomes a small uh, And then when you get above that, obviously kennel clubs and uh, you know the, the the people that control all that. It's all about money. It's all about money. So the good of the breed, it depends. If you kick up enough stink, maybe as in the UK, the British Bulldog. I think they they changed the standard at one point, only because there was petitions online and there was such a stink. They had no choice. But what they normally do is is they close their eyes and they just keep cashing in until there is a huge problem and when there is a huge problem they will publicly address the issue uh, you know between action and reaction there's you know, often many many years uh, of waiting so i mean to answer your question i would say that you know if you look at the working working men you know the the guys that, that, that hunt their dogs etc they avoid like the plague anything that's club or sort of you know um, uh, official orientated so you can see both sides I mean I've in 1990 I was a member of a, a Stafford club and it was a wonderful place I mean you know it was very uh, you know you had uh, Anne Gattenby that's just passed away bless her she used to make big cakes and there used to be urns of tea uh, on the go and it was a nice place to be but over the years you know it's kind of degenerated and uh, I talk about France as well. Right at the beginning in France, when I turned up in France in 1994, there was 74 Staffords in France and maybe four breeders. And most of the 74 was spread out amongst amongst these four breeders. And the shows at the time were a nice place to be. You know, you would go to a show and people would bring a, a bag in the box of wine and some you know, beers in a cooler and sandwiches and charcuterie and it was very pleasant the people there with their dogs and they would discuss and it was a very very nice nice pleasant atmosphere um and it didn't take long for the cliques to arrive you got you know the breeders from the north turned up and they didn't they decided to set their cages up away from the sort of nucleus in the middle and then they you know it became their people their, their clientele would cheer them on in the ring and it became the competitive spirit but in in the in the sort of negative sense and and you know it doesn't take long for it to degenerate from everybody having a nice time to well you know 
this guy won last year. Did you hear about him and her? And then it gets personal. It happens in, you know, horses, dogs, pigeons. It happens in all walks of life. But it's a shame that, you know, something that could be positive. I mean, we spoke about this before. Something that could be like a family event, something very light-hearted, you know, suddenly gets very nasty and backstabbing. You know, not a nice place to be. So a lot of good people, and I've seen it down the years, a lot of good people, well-meaning people, uh, leave the dog scene because they're fed up with all this crap, you know? They're thinking, you know, a working man will work all week and he's going to spend, you know, for his family to go to a dog show at the weekend and there's nothing but negative. So this is another reason why, you know, uh, attendance numbers have dwindled over the years because, you know, it's, it's become... You know, plus Facebook and social media, that hasn't helped things. So, you know, the dog world is a very strange place, strange place. So this, there's no one person to blame. You know, the clubs have got their responsibility, you know, clubs above them, others. But um, like I say, I mean, we're talking just about the general thing. We're not even talking about the quality of the dogs. We're talking about the sort of general consensus now. So... But, I mean, then if you get deeper, obviously, if there's this clique involved, it's going to affect the quality of the dogs. Uh, I remember in the UK there was a certain dog that won everything. It was a big-headed dog, exaggerated, but he was, you know, the, the owner was a member of the club and he was well-respected. And so the newcomers all used their dogs uh, with this, this stud dog that was very exaggerated. And... It, the, the repercussions even today, we're going 20 years on, you've got this particular dog in nearly all the pedigrees. Um, you know, and it wasn't because it was a good dog. It was because he won a lot because of, you know, again, political influence or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so, yes, you have this detrimental effect on the breed, not because of the dog itself, it's because of who was on the other end of the lead. So there's a lot of, I wouldn't say blame, but you can see why things happen like they do or like they did. See what I mean? But it, it depends what, what you're after. I mean, if you're looking at the Terrier shows, I mean, the Terrier shows um, are very popular in the UK. Uh, and it's not necessarily kennel club run. You know, their own little clubs and it's the working dogs and they're judged by somebody who's well-known in the breed, well-respected, you know, some guy that actually works his dog so he knows what he's talking about. And they have their own registries, whether it be handwritten or, you know, printed out with their own little logos. And they, they sort of potter on, you know, quite happily. You know, I know a lot of um, sort of working clubs that they get on like that and they invite judges in and it's it's low-key uh, again uh, you often hear about you know most terriers working terriers some are sold off but most are gifted to other friends because it's the important of the line and again the, the proof is in the pudding if the dog works he's a good one he's, he's then put to a bitch that works and, and then we cross our fingers that the, in the pups there'll be something else that carries on that line and works so you you've got the that way of it's suddenly the monetary value you're getting something for your money now when you're in a a beauty pageant or a beauty contest the dog looks very nice but 
you know, does he, um, you know, does he throw like him? You know, is he is he a good stud or is it a good bitch? Uh, the character, character in the standard is written, but you can't really judge it in a beauty pageant. You know, uh, um, you know all the other things, temperament, uh, everything you want. How does the dog look like in the field? What 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 does a dog look like at work or, you know, um, in the middle of doing some sport? You don't see that when he goes once or twice up at uh, up the carpet in in the show ring. All you can judge is if he's pretty or not. That's it. Is it a good-looking dog? Does he look like the standard? Does he look like a typical example of the brood? So, in a way, um, the clubs it's it's money for old rope. You know, they 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 put out some trophies and you know. When they say, well, you know, this judge is, is, is worth his money, uh, and that's what you're paying for. You're paying for everything around the breed. Now, if you're looking for starting a, an individual club, there are many. For example, in the old English bulldog world, there are many bulldog clubs that put on little weekend shows, and, but they break even. They're not there to make money. You know, they, they, they put on the shows and the stands and they rent the, the, the land and they, you know, they do the publicity and they bring in maybe, you know, 50 or 100 people. Uh, you know, everyone has a good time and they all go away. They don't make much money out of it. So the business side is less interesting, if you like. But again, if somebody shows their dogs and they are good examples of the breed and they look good, then, you know, as, as John F. Gordon said, you know, if you produce good dogs, why not? Uh, benefit a little bit from it you know if you can sell off some of your surplus stock you know and, and go into your bills and maybe make a couple of quid why not but when you suddenly look at dogs as a viable business opportunity uh, oh, you, you're going down the wrong the wrong track because I mean if you do it properly you don't make much money you know, people always, you know, will, will quote, wow, you know, in England, uh, Ed Reed, for example, you know, he bought his house with his dogs and, you know, da -da. Uh, in the pit bull world, they'll say, well, Chico Lopez was a, was a millionaire. Yeah, well, these are exceptions to the rule. Most people that work, you know, you have, uh, when you're working with animals, you've always got the unexpected. So, you're not, you're not going to make much money. I think... If I, if I read between the lines, what you're asking me is, is, is it possible to open a sort of registry or um, a, a business sort of um, around dogs and not go broke? <laughs> so, um, yes, it's possible. But um, like I say, when, when you're getting into the scale of uh, national registries, there's lots of money involved and there's lots of... Um, you know, lots of costs and bits and pieces. So, you know, you only have to, you know, work out how many breeds of dog there are, for example, in America, how many litters are born a year, how much does a pedigree cost? You Suddenly you're getting into huge, huge, huge money. You know, so uh, it depends. If we're talking about is it possible to do sort of independent clubs and breeds and registries? Yes, it is. Um, is it a viable business um, uh, proposition? Not really, not really. Mm -hmm. You can. There are people that make money out of it, but they never really last very long. You know, I can count 
many, you know, the American Bulldog lot and the, the old English Bulldog lot and people that produce these registries and little clubs and within 10 years they've, they've vanished. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's you know, the same old thing. So how long is a piece of string? You know, it depends what we're talking about. Is it possible? Yes. Um, would I advise it? Probably not. Anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, actually, what you know, kind of what I what I think is like, this is a passion hobby. You know what I mean? And if you're 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 in it for the long haul, and it's more important that say you produce good dogs or you promote people that produce good dogs, and that that's your focus. I think people will come and, you know, your ability to make a little, you know, a little scratch at the end is, is, is more likely, but it, it can't be your main focus. So that's, that's kind of what I see with a lot of breeders today, especially in the bull breeds. They're out for that, that, that glory and that money. And they're not, they're not, they may produce a couple good litters and then all of a sudden they're just mass producing and it just, it just gets worse from there and then the breed goes to shit. It, it's, it's back to the old cliche about the quantity and quality, yeah. you know. Um, I, I see a lot of people, I, I, I mentor a few guys that, you know, um, they want to start and they want to do it right and they, you know, and I help these guys out as, as much as I can but some of them you have to be a little bit brutal at the beginning and say well don't be thinking that this is a way to give up your day job you know this is you know producing a line of dogs takes many 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 years and there are no guarantees you know mm -hmm. um, you can uh, again when you're dealing with livestock anything can happen you know you can I had one day somebody come to the kennels and they brought the parvo virus in and it you know, killed a litter, uh, it wiped out you know, half a dozen dogs easily. Um, you know, uh, a prospect that I'd waited for three or four years in the UK for this particular breeding. Da, da, da. This dog died of the parvo virus that somebody you know, unexpectedly brought in. So uh, it's... It swings and roundabouts, fours and against. If you can break even, it's good. And if you can make a few quid after, you know, you've taken everything out and you've done it properly, great. But it's not, uh, um, it's not a given. It's not, you know, I'll take a nice bred female and a nice bred male and then I'll give up my day job. That's, that's not how it works. So, I mean, again, we've talked about this before. In the in the the age of social media, everybody's a star, you know. Um, everybody's bling bling, everybody's kennels are this and their dogs are that, and, and people get misled. Um, but it's very short lived. This is why we always talk about the uh, the pot noodle effect, you know, the the instant specialists. You, know, you just add water, you know, and then you've got a specialist. So people don't want to spend the time and put in the effort and the, you know, the, the years of study to, to get anywhere. They want it at the click of a, you know, the drop of a hat, click your fingers, you know, I'm a specialist, I'm a dogman, I'm this, I'm that. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a passion that is, you know, time consuming. It, it takes up a lot of time and energy and all the rest of it. It's very rewarding, but there are highs and lows, peaks and valleys, 
you know, you've got to, you've got to take it, you know, you, you've got to be a little bit, how would you say, you know, in retrospect, you've got to be a little bit, um, I don't know how you'd say, it. you've got to be a little bit sort of uh, uh, poignant, uh, have a look at the big picture. You know? uh, like I say, it's, it's, it's a passion. Uh, if it's done right, you've got to do it right. Don't think you're going to get instant glory, instant this and instant that, because it's very short-lived. So this this is why I admire the 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 guys from before. But even I, I was talking to somebody the other day. Even the the big names in the kennels in in the UK, for example, we're talking about Staffords again. Um, they're slowly dying off. I mean, I, I had a friend that lived not far away from me, Tony Guerrero, who was Shire staff. And Tony, I met in the 80s, and, you know, he, he had a very nice dog, first champion in the South he had. And this dog was, you know, could, it was the real deal, not only a show champion, but it was a real deal, like the old rappery stuff, you know, they could do it all. And um, I just read recently that Tony passed away, uh, Anne Gattenby from Carisdale, she she passed away. She was in her nineties, and so slowly but surely, all the big names of the Stafford, for example, are slowly sort of you know disappearing. And there's not really the new generation there with enough you know solid uh, solidity, big shoulders to, to to carry on the good work. So. It's, uh, it's, it's a very strange time at the moment. No? This Facebook stuff, again, you've got instant specialists and in five years they're no longer there. Um, I don't know what's gonna, what the future holds. You know, Maybe one or two big kennels. But again, you, in the old days you had an array of affixes and you could pick and choose you know, what you liked. And you know you could ring individual people and see you know what what was the type you like. Again, we're back to the standard again. Staffordshire Bull Terrier is a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, no? Well, not really. They're all different types. You like heavier sets. You like the you know what what type do you like? There there will be a breeder, and good breeders will put you on the right path. Well, if you like you know the rangier types, you want to go and see uh, this fellow over here. He bred, bred some good dogs, but it's becoming less and less now. So people are having less choice, and also what I'm noticing is is people today don't really care about the pedigrees. When you when you you're proud and you bring out the pedigrees of your pup, and you say, well, look, you know, uh, I've got seven or eight generations behind, and there's this dog and there's that dog. People don't really care anymore. So it's uh, it's uh, the Chinese curse. We're, we're living in interesting times, as they say. You, you got to look at it as as livestock, and you've got to prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And so, making a profit off of that is is you know you're you're lucky. You're lucky at the end of the day. You're lucky. So, I look at it like if you a business model that you used your dogs, you used your kennel as a promotion of another business maybe it's dog related maybe it's you know something completely different but you used your kennel as the promotion tool and vice versa 
it, it, it might become a sustainable hobby where you're making a little bit of money, but like you said, it's not it's not going to overtake your day job, you know, unless your your other side business that's not related to the directly related to the kennel is profitable. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're back into business again. I and mean, if you're talking about, you know, viable business opportunities, again, it's, you don't put all your eggs in the same basket, you know. You have, uh, for example, in my case, uh, I was uh, a bar owner. I had a bar and, a, and a, a bar restaurant and a shop. And these were based on, uh, the, the theme was the old bulldog. That was my first bar. Uh, and it was um, basically to differentiate myself from the the Irish pub theme that was in the late sort of 90s or in France in the 90s everything was was Irish so as an Englishman opening a, an establishment I already bred dogs and so I thought it would be fun with the old Winston Churchill thing to call it the old bulldog so the first one was the old bulldog, and any sort of expat abroad immediately, if you said bulldog, they would say, oh, "I must be an English fellow that, that owns that." So I, I kind of ran that, and then I had the, the restaurant was opposite law courts, so I called that the, the bulldog and barrister. And then I had a shop that I called the bulldog boutique. So if you like, I had my brand that was turning, but at the same time, my passion, which was my kennels, was to one side and was turning. So, again, the first few podcasts we've done together basically explains all that. But it was a classic case of one thing complemented the other. You see what I mean? So I wasn't just relying on dogs. I had, you know, bars and restaurants and you know, all different bits and pieces going on, but all under the same sort of thing. So that works very well. Uh, if you you're talking just about um, about kennels, I mean it's it's multiple sources of income. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be thinking like uh, what's his face, uh, Warren Buffett. You know, you're talking about you've got to have several sources of income every, every everything you do. So this is why I see people now are into training. There's a lot of the, the new fashion in France is um, is um, uh, they've managed to get themselves on a training uh, license and they become uh, trainers. They'll train you on uh, training your dog or opening a kennels or, you know. And so they charge you a fee to train. Train online or you come to the kennels and I'll train you. And they become, and you say, well, fair play to these people. They are, they are sort of branching out, you know, just having a kennels and making pups. You know, suddenly you've quickly, you know, gone uh, uh, around the, the, the whole thing. So afterwards, what can they do dog-related? There are, you know, how many sites now that sell dog leads or, you know, dog food or everything to do with... So, yeah, there are there are many ways. I mean, I see in the, in the States, you know, there are the dog walkers, uh, dog sitters, uh, there are hundreds of businesses around the core thing of dogs. So it's, it's, it's possible to make a living. You've just got to be a bit of an entrepreneur and, you know, uh, and again, got to be honest and you've got to, you've got to have a good quality product, you know, because things, why are, uh, there are so many dog breeders? Because very often, if you breed 
let's say you breed a crap dog, the litter is crap, you sell it. People aren't really going to work out that it's crap for at least two or three years. And in two or three years, a lot of things can happen. You know, uh, in this day and age, two or three years is a long marriage. You know, so people are going to be thinking, well, you know, I can knock out two or three crap litters. And this is the beauty. I mean, uh, again, Instagram, uh, now there's TikTok, uh, Facebook. You can become an instant success overnight. Yeah. Only that doesn't um, apply to dogs. To be a dogman, you have to, uh, in theory, have proved yourself over many generations of good stock. Your business card is your animals. It's living proof that you've done something that's worth a second look. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, now, uh, everybody's an instant millionaire or an instant uh, success or an instant something on Facebook because you don't know the truth. You just see nice edited videos and flashy stuff. And, and so you cross your fingers and you pay your money and you take a chance. But in when you're producing livestock, people should, and this, this is, again, it's the conjurer's trick, it's smoke and mirrors. People are relying on the fact that the most part of people, they're lazy, so they can't be bothered to do their homework to see if the guy in front of them is legit or not. You know, how many times have I heard, oh, um, you've got pups for sale. Yeah, I've got a litter for sale. Yeah, where, where are you based? Well, I'm based in the middle of France. Oh, no, it's too far. See what I mean? Yeah. The minute it's too far, I mean, I brought a dog in from Australia uh, 25 years ago, you know? Um, you can't get any further than that. that that's the difference. You, you've got to be willing to go after it. Here, it's, I want it now. It's instant gratification. Mm -hmm. um, where do you live? Imagine this same person that can't be bothered to travel a couple of hours in his car to come and get something that I've worked on for many years. Imagine he buys a female. In a couple of years, is he really going to look for a decent stud dog for his bitch? Of course not. He's going to look to his neighbour. What's convenient? He's not going to look at pedigrees. He's not going to, you know, break his head and think, yeah, is this mating going to be that? And what's it going to give? He's going to say, well, a friend of mine uh, down the pub, he's got a Stafford. I think I'll mate him to my dog. And that's times that by a million. You see what I mean? That's, and that's another reason why you can get the quality of a race nosedives very quickly. I mean, and I said, from what I'd seen, uh, I was in Italy judging many years ago, and the quality was uh, boff. And I was in Italy a couple of years ago, and the quality is now better than in France. Why? Because there are many breeders that have suddenly taken the subject very seriously and done a thorough selection, and and they've they've it's it's night and day. The last time I was there, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. I was just I had eighty dogs to judge, and I've never been happier. You know, it was just one after another. They were fine examples of the breed, but again, that's a long time that I can say that for for France. I mean, the last dog show I went to, I mean, I left halfway through. You know, mm -hmm. so. Anyway, it's, it's the same old thing. I think we're just in an era now where um, things are false and it's all sort of, again, smoke and mirrors. And 
they rely on the fact that the vast majority of the people aren't as dedicated as maybe they were before. I mean, I waited for my first dog. I waited at least two, three years. I couldn't get in. I, w I wasn't part of this uh, this inner circle. Um, so I'd ring and they'd say, yeah, you know, who, who recommended you? Well, nobody. You know, I was only sort of 17, 18 years old. Well, if, you know, if I don't know you, you know, boom, that's it, phone down. So I couldn't get my foot in the door because I didn't know anyone. Today, it's not like that. Today, if you want a Stafford, you've got 5,000-plus uh, publications, uh, you know, at the click of a finger. So I think it's changed the dynamic. It's changed a lot of things. But, uh, again, we're, we're not even talking about the quality of animals. We're just talking in general. In general, I think it's, it's the people that have changed. The mindset has changed. You know, people uh, aren't as fussy, maybe, as, as they were. Yeah, it's, uh, I've travelled in a battered old Ford Escort in the four corners of the UK, going to dog shows to sit on a seat in a in a cold, drafty hall to watch dogs go up and down the mat, you know, catch a snippet of conversation with you know some sort of old fella. This is what I did. That was my apprenticeship. Today, people aren't going to do that. You know, between uh, a couple of Netflix series, they're just going to quickly go on the internet and have a little look about what's about, you know. It's, um, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but, you know, things have changed. They're not like they were.